in a time of dwindling interest in baseball, the last thing you need is no play and no play as a result of people squabbling over money is never a good look, especially when the US has got many other things that can uh, capture a sports fan's interest. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I am your host Owen Connolly taking you through another weekly wrap of news from in and around the business of sport. Hope you're well. Uh, delighted to be joined once again by Sports Pro Digital Editor Tom Bassam. Hello Tom. Hello Owen. Pleasure to be back. Pleasure to have you back. Um, yeah just the two of us today but plenty of uh, Plenty of stories to, to get our teeth into, as always, but some particularly thorny ones, I think, this time. So I don't know whether we want to get our teeth into those or, or deploy a different metaphor, but we'll see as we go along. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about uh, lockout in baseball. We're going to be talking about women's sport and women in sport. Um, we're going to be looking, as always, at a couple of stories, maybe flying under the radar in uh, the sports industry. But first, we spoke a fair bit last time with Rob Harris and Professor Simon Chadwick about the unfolding situation in Ukraine and, of course, the ramifications for sport. That, very sadly on the ground, but of course in other walks of life as well, is is going to be something that is unfolding over several weeks and that continues to be the case. And we're getting into the really... I, it's maybe making too much of an excuse of it to say complex stuff, but certainly the more legally involved stuff. One thing that was done fairly decisively, Formula One has cancelled its contract uh, to have a Russian Grand Prix. Um, so that is off the calendar for the foreseeable future. But yeah, we've seen a few measures taken to, you know, the, the, the next wave of stuff. I mean, the, FIFA has made an allowance for Russian-based players to leave their football clubs, um, but we're also getting into the point of TV deals and, and media deals and media presences in Russia. Probably the, the place to start with this is the is the Premier League, isn't it? It uh, appears to be pretty much a done deal that their current broadcast contract with Rambler, which is essentially like a, a Russian uh, equivalent of Google, as I understand it, uh, that's that's now been... That's now been scrapped, but that was set to expire at the end of the season anyway. Um, I think more interesting and where there is still questions is like the yeah, is on what happens with their deal with Match TV, which of course is Match TV is ultimately owned by Gazprom Bank, which is ultimately owned by the Russian state. There's still some there's still some tentacles that need to be kind of unwrapped, I guess, from from around the Premier League. Uh, should they want to do that, and I suggest that they probably should. But it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a thorny, thorny situation. I mean, the Russian football union has been firing off complaints to cast left, right, and centre. It seems, firstly, to try and unwind their their ban from UEFA and FIFA competitions at national level. But um, I can't imagine that they'll take to these things quietly. Although, given the increasingly perilous state of the Russian economy, maybe there'll be a sort of point where. Uh, there's a kind of financial decision made and it's not really worth the fight. But it's, it's certainly a, a situation which I think is going to be complex and needs, needs to be handled very delicately. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, you know, this is a situation that's unfolding day by day and uh, each of these scenarios are being revisited 
you know, on, on a, a, a regular basis. But yes, I think that, that economic dimension of it may be the thing that presents a route out of, of some of these contracts, but certainly the, the pressure increasing on organizations like the Premier League to, um, uh, to, to cut some of these deals. The interesting um, side note here is, of course, that the Premier League was deplatformed, shall we say, in uh, China last weekend because of some of the displays of solidarity with people in Ukraine, you know, Ukrainian flags and moments of applause and uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, deemed unpalatable by um, the curators, the censors in in China of, of sports broadcast. There, so it does show that this is there are many many dimensions to this, and they're going to continue to present themselves as we go. Chelsea Football Club continue to be up for sale at the moment. They were on the brink of being up for sale when we recorded last week, but um, that's now uh, a live process, and we'll see what happens there. This um, scenario again with. Um, with FIFA and the allowances they've made for professional players based in Russia to leave. It's been criticised as a bit of a half measure. And, you know, we, we've seen FIFA go from half to full measures in the last couple of weeks. So it may be something that changes again. But at the moment, as I understand it, they are allowing players to leave for the rest of the season and then to kind of revisit those contracts, not terminate them altogether, but perhaps revisit them uh, at the end of the season. I think there's always calls for governing bodies to go the kind of the full force i don't tend to agree with what fifa does all the time but i think taking things in stages actually pays off in this kind of situation where a situation changes day by day i think it was probably quite easy to criticize the way that they handled the light-handed approach to start with but then enforcing that kind of full ban at the end of last week and then this approach as well i think seems sensible because like partly partly because of the sort of how, how legally they've got to do it, but also just strategically too. So I think I think it almost mirrors the sanctions other countries and the UK a bit have been putting on uh, the Russian economy, and just stepping those up over time, and just and making sure that you've got that constant winding of pressure on Russia to kind of back down, as it were, uh, and that you've always got an extra kind of thing to come and hit them with. I think is important to do. So I'm not going to berate FIFA for for, the, for for this move. I think it's I think like a sensible first step and then you've got extra basically you've got more more give yourself more room to play with by kind of taking this step-by-step approach to doing it and of course the delicate thing is is being able to stand some of this stuff up legally uh as you mentioned you know uh, russian sports organizations are beginning to take their cases to cas which could provide some some seriously embarrassing situations but let's hope that isn't what what transpires the other thing that's happened over the past week, of course, is that Russian para-athletes were excluded ultimately from the Paralympic Games, which are taking place as we speak in Beijing. Difficult one again for the IPC in that they didn't have a kind of equivalent basis on which, even though, you know, ethically, morally, they had plenty of grounds to to exclude a Russian team from their event. And they didn't have the same kind of cut and dried basis that the IOC had been able to, to draw upon for the... Um, abuses of the olympic charter let's say but the uh, in the event there are no russian para athletes out there and we saw the optics of what can happen when you do have russians competing in international sport at the moment i think it's not going to be one that people find as easy to um to make definitive judgments about but you know we had this really unpleasant incident with ivan kuliak who was a, a russian gymnast competing in a world championships event and 
finished third. The champion was Ilya Kovtun, who is from Ukraine, and uh, Ivan Kuliak wearing this Z over his uh, Russian federation or whatever Russian badge he was he was kind of um, allowed to compete with, and the Z being a kind of sign of uh, of support for the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I think it, it did just show what the difficulties are at the moment, let's say, of having this situation go on and international sport kind of trying to react to it in real time. Yeah, I, and I think it actually showed the the sort of the benefit of, of just having a blanket ban because you, you just you just avoid this whole situation like this this is messy it like it it doesn't it doesn't need to happen and actually like if if your country isn't willing to stick by the the rules of international law when it comes to um it comes to borders and invasions and human rights then actually why should they be given the platform to show off on the on the uh, world stage in in the athletic field too like if if you don't want to comply with those rules then you can't comply with any like then you're not going to be able to you can't pick and choose what, which ones you want to do and and yeah this is this is ugly this isn't what I, this is a very bad look for the international gymnastics federation i mean it's probably only saved from a kind of public facing view by the fact that the the event itself was won by a ukrainian so mm. but that shouldn't take away from the fact that you've essentially got the 2022 equivalent of a german um athlete wearing a swastika i think it's it's a very salient point and a corresponding one is that there are going to be russian athletes who just don't really want to compete for russia right now and all that that takes away from their career in in the long run um they don't want to be put in that position. Um, right. Let's um, leave that to one side, something that, as we say, it's, it's going to have ramifications throughout the year and beyond. I have absolutely no doubt. Let's go across the Atlantic uh, and look at baseball. Major League Baseball is locked out as we're speaking. It's, this is a, another thing that it's, it's, is developing day by day and there are various deadlines being set up and currently they're being missed. But What's uh, what's the story here, Tom? The opening day of MLB is is off. We expect we will see some baseball a little bit later in the spring, but when that is, is not currently clear. Why is that? My understanding of this is is essentially that the baseball is that the owners here have. I mean, they, they've put themselves in a they put themselves in a hard place where they're they're not they've, they've made themselves the enemy essentially. Um, they don't want to they've, they've been trying to introduce a, a salary cap i guess into major league baseball by stealth with this uh, with this luxury tax that not many teams um not many teams seem that willing to go over anymore baseball of course the only sport the only us major sport that doesn't have a doesn't have a salary cap and in order to counter that the the, the players are asking for improvements on minimums uh, and also for um yeah for that for that luxury tax threshold to be increased, the, the owners know that like they kind of have to they have to give on one of those things, but it doesn't seem like that that is moving in any direction quickly. And yeah, got announced last week that we were heading heading for a lockout. We were going to be losing the the opening day of the baseball season. Maximum uh, amount of games currently, I think uh, last count was was one five six down from one six two. But yeah, to, to be honest, it just seems like a mess, and it couldn't come at a worse time for baseball. So at a time where they're, I mean, they've they've they did well to get through their their last round of um, 
TV deals. They've still got a package out, which various people are being linked with, including Apple and Amazon and Arsenal, bizarrely. Um, but yeah, in a time of dwindling interest in baseball, the last thing you need is is no play and no play as a result of people squabbling over money is never a good look, especially when the US has got many other things that can uh, capture a sports fan's interest. That's something we'll come on to in just a sec. I mean, this is not the first contentious discussion in baseball in the last couple of years. We've gone into this from this sort of whole of baseball debate and negotiation uh, that was happening through the pandemic and just before the pandemic with the restructure of minor league baseball, the reputational stake that Rob Manfred, the, the MLB commissioner, put down on that, you know, getting rid of certain teams, um, reorganizing leagues, uh, resetting the standards that, that MLIB teams, sorry, MILB teams were expected uh, to reach when it came to facilities and various things like that. And there were some metaphorical noses bloodied in that whole process and these things are difficult because when these negotiations play out in public there is that reputational element of it and there is that sort of media is going to look for who the bad guy is and as you say MLB seem to have not left themselves on the side of the angels no I I mean I don't think at this stage that Rob Manfred's got much of a reputation to like uh, that's not that's not tainted or damaged I don't think his I don't think his public standing could be much lower uh, fans don't like him. They don't think he. Like, it, there's a sort of perception that he doesn't doesn't get baseball. Um, the way he delivered the lockout, the way he even the way he delivered the lockout was criticised. The sort of actually reminded me a little bit of that. Some of the criticisms, justified criticisms of Boris Johnson around the the Partygate scandals, um, but he seemed to be smirking through the press conference and talking about people's livelihoods, uh, albeit some of them being millionaires, but they are still livelihoods and not everyone will make their fortune playing professional baseball. So yeah, for him to kind of have that sort of outward presentation of, of someone who's maybe enjoying this process that or happy that this is the way that it's turned out, I think it's, I think was terrible for him. I think it could be, I think, I mean, you'd be very surprised if he, if he lasts another sort of term uh, as commissioner. I think once, once kind of this, this CBA is done. The, the time for him to go would be, uh, yeah, coming coming rather sooner. But I mean, ultimately, he is also just the front man for um, a lot of wealthy old white blokes who own professional baseball teams uh, who simply just don't want to give their players what they what they're asking for. It's a it's a tough job, but I, I think other commissioners do it far better than he does. Yeah, it is that the relationship between owners and 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 talent in American sport is, as as you say, is is different from uh, some other leagues. The the talent market operates differently, but um, it's definitely going to be the thing that defines how those leagues develop in in the next um, ten years or so. And particularly as you know, we move into another generation of CBAs and another generation of rights and of, of various kinds that people want different pieces of you spoke just a few moments ago about the fact that there is a big market for other sport in the u.s um the seasonality of uh, of sport continues to be maybe a bigger factor there than in say here in europe where football is, is so dominant baseball season is meant to start and catch people's attention and and and, and carry away through the summer um people still talk about the effects of the strike in 1994 
which took a lot of that season away with it and uh, and, and damaged a lot of interest. Probably again, quite a key kind of um, changing of the guard in, in terms of media and culture. What are we What are we going to see from other leagues, other organisations, other teams? I mean, we've already started to see the odd local team in the US, not necessarily in Major League Soccer, but in you know other, other tiers of, of US professional soccer start to reach out to fans of baseball teams in those communities you know what what do you think we'll see during that quiet period at the start of the baseball season it's certainly a time of opportunity isn't it i mean you've got a couple of couple of leagues um with what you'd say is decent momentum um so mls and the nwsl um both kind of kicking off fairly fairly shortly so there's a there's a real opportunity to capture some attention and get some get some eyeballs uh, on your property that perhaps you might not have had. I, th- I think, I think those are the two really that stand out. I mean, obviously you'll have the, the NBA season kind of coming to a, coming to a, starting to come to a head anyway, but those sports that have deliberately plotted themselves outside of the NFL sh- uh, shadow are now going to find themselves outside of the, the, at least initially anyway, outside of the major league baseball shadow too. So it's, yeah, it could be uh, a, a good time for Mr. Garber to uh, be talking to his TV rights partners about what what they're going to do next there, uh, and also for the NWSL, which got some really good, got some really encouraging, strong TV ratings figures last season to keep pushing home that advantage, especially as we're building up towards uh, yeah a men's World Cup in 2026 being hosted in the US, but also the the, the upcoming World Cup in Qatar uh, late much later in the year, but. The, the, there's going to be so I think football football in the US could have a, a strong summer for sure. Yeah, and if, you know that that men's World Cup there is a bidding race at the moment for host cities um, in in the US, and it will be co-hosting that tournament with with Canada and Mexico. Yeah, that's going to generate a lot of momentum potentially behind that tournament years out because you're you're going to have that kind of local interest and, and the dynamics around that will be fascinating. If you know if there is anything any any kind of space for some of these local teams to push into between those two world cups men's world cup in qatar and the men's world cup in north america there is a women's world cup australia and new zealand next year which uh gives us a nice point to segue into our next um topic of conversation international women's day was this week and of course you have the flurry of uh marketing bump that comes around with that but also you know an opportunity to, to highlight some of the the real progress and, and and some of the more meaningful initiatives that we've seen sports organizations roll out in the last uh, the last couple of years or so nwsl as you say is a factor in that and we're going to see angel city launch this year they're going to debut i think it's in the next few weeks in a pre-season nwsl tournament you know and that will capture a lot of excitement because you have investors from the worlds of entertainment and technology and it's it's something different that we haven't quite seen yet in um in women's sport you know we've seen some real signs of the burgeoning commercial interest around women's sport and, and, and female athletes you know a new title sponsor for the wta in hologic um euro 2022 has brought in organizations like lego and linkedin we've seen tiktok put its name to the uh, women's six nations um, you know, we've got the Women's Cricket World Cup going on at the moment. Uh, we've got this investment in the WNBA um, and US Women's National Team, of course, had that landmark uh, equal pay win 
quite recently in the courts, or not even in the courts. It was achieved through pressure on the courts, but uh, ultimately an agreement with US soccer. All that's going on. Mind you, there are two questions here. There's women's sport and then there's women in sport. And, you know, that commercial interest can perhaps be separated by the environment or from the environment, I should say, um, that the sports industry provides. Uh, there was a roundtable on sportspromedia.com in, uh, in in recent days um, with a few female leaders giving their perspectives on where things were. And I know that you wanted to um, highlight a couple of passages from that. Yeah, I, I think the I think your point about the different the differentiation between women's sport and women in sport is 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 a good one actually because like it's something that kind of you might assume looking at a looking at an organization that's doing so like that is doing well on a on sort of on-field stuff um that's that's being mirrored off-field uh but i think a big like the, the, for me that one of the things i found most interesting from that um whole round table was how each of the women that took part in it and um i'm very aware of the irony of two blokes here sitting talking about international women's day but uh it was sort of one of the things that i found quite striking was the stuff about having that mentorship that that women in sports that women in the sports industry can provide to younger women coming who, who want to come into the industry and i guess that'll that'll only snowball as you get more and more uh women in those kind of roles uh I, there's a quote that i think a couple of them draw on which is the uh, billy Lee Jean kings if you can see it you can be it um but i think it's i think that's particularly prescient but it, it's as much as they were as much as the sort of they were able to yeah talk about how it's important for for women to inspire women i actually think that there's um yeah that there's a real there's a duty for men to do to do similarly to to make it feel like a more welcoming environment and i don't think that's always the case um i can say that from like most organizations that i've worked in that i mean being being in sport you look around a room and it's often just blokes um uh, and that uh, whilst it's whilst sort of we all talk about how we want that to change sometimes you actually have to like i think more and more organizations are realizing that you have to actually do something how do we make sure that happens men can't just leave it up to to women to to fix so i think i think we have to play an active role in in making sure that happens too i mean and also there's benefits there's a, like there's a, there's a really interesting news piece which i picked up the other day uh which was based on some research done in the House of Commons, which essentially said that businesses with females in executive roles were uh, much more likely to generate more revenue than than those um, with more males at the top. So it, it's not it's not like there's a kind of it's not like there isn't an, an incentive to. So uh, yeah, I think it's uh, I think there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of talk about the how how women's sport is advancing in terms of sponsors and. Like audiences and all of that kind of stuff in recent years, and I think there has to, that has to go hand in hand with the with the women in sport stuff too. So the, the yeah, women working in um, in organisations and the NBA, I think, are doing a pretty good job on this. I think I, I think something down like forty percent of their um, like back office roles essentially are held by women, um, and that's that's very encouraging. Uh, and perhaps we should be all looking at them and asking how how that's happening. That roundtable piece is obviously still on sportspromedia.com. Uh, went out on International Women's Day. 
Um, should mention the contributors, Jane Hansen from the Professional Triathletes Organization, Elsa Memi from the NBA, uh, Heidi Browning from the NHL, SJ Lidka from IndyCar, and Andrea Ekblad from DAZN. Um, yeah, the point about making the environment more inclusive or, or less uh, alienating, I suppose. There's, you know, there, there was um, a recent study by Women in Sport which surveyed 4,000 teenagers and found that, you know, lots of young girls get involved in sport at a young age and then as they move into adolescence, they, they drop out and sometimes that can be a question of just not feeling like spaces are for them and feeling a little bit um, lacking a bit of assurance um, in that respect. I think that can happen certainly in, in in a lot of work environments too. And there's an awareness that needs to be built up and it needs to be done deliberately, let's be honest, because the default for lots of work environments and sport and sports media is often that case, is kind of unconsciously white and male. And it, you have to be intentional in the way that, that you address that because you're just not going to make any progress otherwise, however, you know, however well-minded you might be. Yeah, it sort of brought it home a little bit. Uh, I was at a, a journalism awards show recently and it was a very male dominated room. And I sort of started to think about like, why is that? And, and this is just, I'm just talking about sports journalism is in kind of my my own background or my own industry here. But that's a, it's a lifestyle really where quite a lot of those people that work on the sort of more glamorous front end of it, where they're at venues and stuff are traveling a lot away from families. Um, not particularly like, like it's probably not you're not surprised when you hear about like very high divorce rates among sports journalists and stuff like that because it's just not an industry that's particularly well set up to to serve both sexes equally i don't think and like that's something that can only be addressed yeah as you said very deliberately it almost needs rethinking that whole sector in a way to make it more inviting so that you don't have those you're not putting in those barriers to progress so whether that's uh, barriers to managing a family life or um, having children and all those kind of things that are still problem for um, for yeah for women accessing sort of the the top ends of those professions. Yeah, and we have seen a little bit of recognition of that in, for example, the CBA that the NWSL came up with a few weeks ago that included greater provision for. Uh, maternity leave and greater provision for um, travel for family but it's that's one element of it and it is all the um all the other parts of it as well and it, it is it's having environments not just where women can leave but where women can feel that they're going to have the same opportunities at at every level but i think there has to be an open dialogue about all of these things and it, it, as as we say it it has to be deliberate and it has to be um a little bit more thoughtful because I just think that some of these things go over people's heads and to, to take it back to your point about the competitive advantage that there is for these organizations that, that do have more diverse leadership, more diverse workforces. There's just thoughts that don't occur to people when there's monocultural representation. I think some of these conversations just, just don't take place and some of the ideas don't pop into people's heads. And we've seen that time and time again in, uh, in the last few years, whether it's, a poor policy decision or a poor um, bit of presentation or or what have you there's just always that thing where if a certain experience is more prevalent and uh, and is and and tends to dominate then um 
that experience get re- gets represented and others tend not to be. All right, um, we're running out of time, I think, a bit, Tom, but let's uh, let's look at a couple of stories that maybe are drifting under the radar at the moment. What what have you noticed in the last week or so? Uh, well, yeah, a sort of interesting one for me last week was the, uh, the a- acquisition of 55% of David Beckham, essentially, uh, by Authentic Brands Group. $269 million deal, according to CNBC, which will see Authentic Brands, which acquired Reebok from Adidas and also has, uh, uh, also has stakes in, uh, I think it's the controlling owner of Sports Illust- uh, Illustrated too. Um, but what essentially means that they're buying 55% of his endorsements, his his digital media partnerships, his, his consumer products. Interesting in that, like, so their only other, uh, or their, their other sort of similar piece of their portfolio is the rights to Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali is obviously not with us any longer. Uh, and David Beckham is very much still alive. So it's just, it, it showed to me one of the incredible <laughs> pulling power still of a, of a, a footballer who is very good, but not, absolutely fabulous um but has, has obviously got a lot of skill off the pitch um in terms of promoting himself and his brand um but also the yeah uh, what more uh, kind of an investor could do with that i think is going to be interesting too it is i think uh yeah 55 percent of david beckham in his playing career you would have got a lot of different value from where that 55 percent ran down the kind of axis of his body because certainly one of the more one one footed players at, at that level of football in uh, in recent history, with respect to David Beckham, who was pretty good. Let's be fair. Yeah, I love you, Bex. <laughs> um, but the other thing is the kind of bifurcation of of the Beckham brand and Beckham as a a personality. Obviously, uh, you know, one of the lead investors and, and um, leaders in the ownership group into Miami. Um, there is the Beckham as businessman emerging, and then there's the would it be fair to say maybe this is going to be a sign that this is a more passive element of of his earnings now for the next uh, the next phase of his career in his public life, um, you know, and and that's the bit that somebody else can manage on on his behalf and and maybe look for new places to put it and new opportunities. Um, yeah, I, I imagine it probably gives him just more of a. Uh, more time to focus on probably the bits that he likes. I mean, so the, the deal includes his his Studio 99 production company, which has got a few different projects in development. So uh, you'd think that's probably where he might be more focused on being in front of the camera than doing the deals behind it. But yeah, I think I think it's probably one that works for all parties. Uh, but still, I mean, like, the, 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 the fee is eye-watering, uh, considering if you ask what, if, if you were to sort of have to describe David Beckham in, to an alien in less than 30 words, you'd say, well, he's a retired footballer. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a higher transfer fee than was ever paid during his career. Yeah, quite. Shaquille O'Neal also in the um, uh, in the ABG family, and that has ended up with him basically being involved in the deal to buy Reebok at the back end. So it's, um, yeah, they're, they're, these things can lead in, in unexpected directions. Marilyn Monroe, I think also her estate on the, on the ABG books. Just a bit of trivia for you there. I would say uh, another story that it's not really under the radar uh, because it's been 
pretty ever present in everything that we've been thinking about for not just the last year, but probably the last like 25 years in, in club football. But the European Super League concept, it's it's back. It's very slightly retooled. Uh, it involves a lot of the same faces, some of them um, glaring at each other across a conference floor at the FT Business of Football Summit here in London last week. You know, the likes of Javier Tebas and uh, Andrea Agnelli. We're checking out a feature that came out in the last day or so from Miguel Delaney in, in The Independent. But basically, a few people have pointed out that you know, not only did this idea not go away, but it's possibly evolving slightly, maybe becoming something a bit cuter and a bit more palatable um, to some of the people who are ultimately able to take it down 12 months ago. But um, yeah, perhaps something that's as much a rival to the Premier League as the Champions League, perhaps something that's as much about kind of representation and power within European football as it is um, about creating a, a closed-off competition. But definitely the conditions for it haven't necessarily changed in, in, in the financial sense of things. Yeah, it, it never really it never really died in the, in the minds of the, the likes of Andrea Agnelli, uh, I don't think. But it's, it's tough to see how this progresses without the, the English clubs. Um, it's, I, don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's something that works at all without them. Um, I think the power of the Premier League has been shown a lot recent in the last few months, not just in terms of performance on the pitch, but also in terms of like the the value that it can still that it still has around the world uh, to to viewers. Um, and without those clubs being involved, and I, I think it's very very hard for those clubs to try and get involved in this kind of project again, but just because of the reaction that they saw last time and those those sort of pathetic uh, apology videos that went up and various different statements and all of these kind of things. I, it's it's hard to see the English clubs being able to be brought back into it. Um, so I, I don't know how, yeah, I don't know how it gets off the ground without them. Um, but I mean, maybe, maybe there, maybe there is something I, I just, I, it feels to me that PSG have become stronger uh, in over the last year when they're, um, their owner becoming a key part of the structure and the governance of European football at a club level in terms of governance. I don't see how the German clubs get involved. So it, it's just, it feels like a kind of, I don't know. Like it, to me, it does feel like this is a kind of, it's just a bit pathetic, <laughs> but uh, it, it's clear that, that it's clear that there's some grievances still. Uh, and while there's still grievances and there's still a EU court case, then um yeah, there's there's still a chance it could happen. I, I'm, I feel like we're further away. That even though these even though these talks are happening, and I, I'm, I think some of the fun, it was quite it was just more. I was more amused by some of those comments that came out of the that um, FT summit last week than than anything else. Yeah, and the uh, the court case could be consequential because it will, um, it, it could reframe the terms of who gets to run. European football competitions, basically, and whether you know something has to be fully UEFA sanctioned in order for it to uh, to qualify as a, a legitimate competition, um, whether UEFA counts as a competitor to some of these clubs, which is the contention that they're making. Um, I think, yeah, in terms of most people's intuitive grasp of, of how football is run, that wouldn't be the case. But legally, there are certainly avenues that you know uh, there are arguments you can make that 
maybe it is and that will be the thing that could have ramifications a long way beyond this row and could have different organizations set up and 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 evolving to to shape the future of, of the european game but that you know that's all hypothetical at the moment i think as you say a lot of it is coming from a grievance financial grievance place and um the the groundswell of support for something radically different in european football from the fans perspective is is not really there other than obviously fans of some clubs want their club to be more competitive the landscape looks more settled than it did because we've had you know we we, we have a new shape for the champions league in a couple of years time with this uh this swiss league um i noticed they've watered down some of the proposals to get kind of legacy places in there but um that's still there's still going to be you know a pretty decent amount of security for for the top clubs um and you also now have a new deal with team and and relevant for the commercial rights to the champions league and, and certain financial guarantees in there as well so yeah it's not it's not a debate that's over but it's we'll see if it's one that comes back with the same fervor as we saw back in the spring of, of 2021 it made me kind of hark back to an earlier part of our conversation really about major league baseball and do those clubs want to be the the bad guys or the, the face of something that actually maybe they not, might not be able to uh, pull off again? Um, and yeah, carrying through that that public perception. Uh, and so, yeah, it makes me think that, yeah, it's, it's maybe not, it's maybe not, maybe not going to kind of come to fruition in the way of the mind of uh, the way that Andrea Agnelli wants it to. Yeah. Yeah, certainly hard to see. Before we wrap up, uh, one other piece of news from the world of sport in the last week, uh, last Friday, as we're speaking, uh, we heard the shock news that Shane Warne, arguably, I mean, everyone's been describing as as the greatest spin bowler of all time, but arguably the best cricketer of all time, and certainly one of the most magnetic personalities, I think, in in that sport and in, in many other sports, dying last week at the age of 52 from uh, from what looks like a heart attack on holiday in Thailand. I mean, stunned barely covers it from when it comes to my reaction to that. It was just it, surreal. Yeah, I, I I sort of, I got, as you do, discovered most things these days. I got a message in a group WhatsApp, sort of just like, oh, not Shane Warne. Um, and I was like, what does that mean? Uh, and then as it sort of dawned on me what what had happened and I picked up a picked up a new story and had a read, it, it was like yeah, hard it's really hard to imagine um kind of cricket without him, actually. Uh it's such a sort of such a present in my whole life of watching cricket, like whether that was him playing and tormenting England or whether that's in um, commentating, just his sort of presence around the game. Like there was, a, I, I went and rewatched or watched for the first time the uh, the documentary on Amazon, just to kind of yeah reinforce the kind of the, the memories of Shane Warne that I had uh, as a player and as a personality too. Like I, mm. I think in fifty two years he probably did more living than most people do, might do in ninety, and never yeah never short of a. a quip or a turn of phrase and but ultimately yeah just an entertainer and cricket's going to be poorer without him it absolutely is i mean there have been some 
some lovingly uh, rendered tributes to him, and, and many of them are fantastic and, and you know well worth um, well worth looking at if you get the opportunity. The just the, the, the his quality as a player was kind of part of it, but he just had an aura that I think everybody who watched him at the time, everybody certainly who was associated with England, who, as you say, were on the receiving end an awful lot of the time, never more so, in fact, than when they actually managed to beat that Australian team in 2005. And Warren was just everywhere in that series, this kind of looming presence, like something out of kind of, you know, uh, like a, a work of kind of Norse fiction or something, just this indestructible force who just appeared at, at every turn. And presence is the word that kind of applies to to what he was like away from the game as well. And obviously there were some more colourful stories, but I remember, I mean, a couple of years ago now, I had the the good fortune to, to sit down and have a chat with him. And what really struck me was he was just respectful of, you know, the job that I was trying to do, was generous with his time, generous with his opinions, made sure that I, you know, everything was as I wanted it to be before we started. And I think that's the the thing that I've had from or the thing that I've picked up from a lot of the colleagues that he had, younger colleagues, whether they were players or people in the media, that he just, you know, was someone who was um, willing to give others uh, his support as well. And and that generosity uh, will have left a mark on the game. Um, And he will be missed. And obviously our thoughts go out to his family and, uh, and, and those closest to him at this time. We will leave it there for this edition of the Sports Pro Podcast. Um, the Sports Pro team, or a, a chunk of the Sports Pro team, are out in New York this week uh, at the Sports Pro OTT Summit USA. And I think we probably, Tom, will hear a bit from Steve McCaskill, uh, who's with them next week. But we'll 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 see where we go with that. Um, but until then, uh, thank you to you, Tom Basson. Thank you very much for having me, Owen. Always a pleasure. Uh, the Sports Pro podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. Thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll be back with you again very soon. Bye bye.